1: The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. This is, again, part of our special edition episode. So this episode is coming to you live Monday night. Um... Given you, we'll just start at the beginning of the hour because we've usually gone through this at the end of the hour. want to make sure that everybody is aware of this. So what we're doing is we're doing a series of special episodes. We're trying out a couple different formats, trying to include people in a number of different ways. Mumble Room, of course, is open the entire time. Mumble.JupiterBroadcasting.org. Join us in the Mumble Room. Join us in our interactive chat room. We've got a new chat room. It is hashtag AskNoahShow, and that is on, or pound Ask Noah Show. I'll get it right eventually, guys. That is over on Freenotes. You can join us there. We're going to be doing a drawing on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock p.m., somewhere between the 6 and 7 o'clock hour, at the Tamarack Tap Room in Woodbury, Minnesota. We are going to have a celebration for our 100th edition episode. Now, We invite you to join us for that. We invite you to come out and we invite you to join us for that. We're going to have a commemorative poster that we want you all to sign. And that poster will then be mounted and hung in the Ask Noah studio. So if you want to cement your place in Ask Noah history, come out and join us. As always, of course, you can do this from anywhere in the world. You can join pound Ask Noah show in FreeNode, and you'll be entered to win that $100 Amazon gift card. So we invite you to do that. Of course, the phone lines, as always, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com, all sorts of ways to get in contact with the show. I want to, during these, um, during these, I guess, special episodes, I want to focus on the things that we don't usually focus on. And one of the things that I think we lack is listener feedback. You guys have been absolutely fantastic about interacting with us Over email sending us in email sending us questions giving us feedback about the show and of course we always appreciate that sometimes they're not quite formatted um, read they're a little too long to actually read on air and so I've kind of shied away from doing that the other thing is that it always concerns me that my voice is too monotonous if you get too much of Noah I'm afraid that will kind of drive people off so I like to get a little bit of mix in there with the callers or sometimes we have some people that kind of guest host with me those kinds of things. But during these special episodes, that's the point, is to try some of this stuff. And so we're going to try and incorporate some of that feedback. And so far, the feedback actually has been pretty positive. So you haters out there who are against what we're doing, you need to step up your game. Ashley writes into the program, says, hey, buddy, I know you've been seeking feedback about the things that you're incorporating into the show. And I wanted to make sure that my voice was heard, saying that what you've already done is great. New ideas are fantastic, but remember that your current stuff is not lacking in any way. I also have a question about a situation I'd like to get your opinion on. Well, Ashley, I am an expert on my opinion. Ashley writes in light of IBM and red hat in light of the merger he's referring to. I have started to explore CentOS. Now I'm a hardcore Ubuntu guy, but the 10 year support of CentOS is yelling at me. And after testing CentOS 7.5, I see that it only comes with PHP 5. Well, that version is EOL. Come December 31st, 2018, and I've had a tough time trying to install PHP 7.2. Is this something that is officially supported in any way? The only way I've been able to do it, which did not work, was to follow some magic command line script involving some guy named Remy's repo. He has a bonus question, which hopefully we're going to get to here in a little bit. The answer to your question, Ashley, is yes, it is. Well, it's a mixture of yes and no. Yes, it is officially supported. No, it's not officially supported like there's an official way to unofficially inst- or there's an unofficial way to officially install uh, 7.2. And the way is through the EPEL repository. And um, this is essentially a repository of code that is not included by default in Red Hat, CentOS or Scientific Linux, but that you can very easily add. And so the way to do that, and we'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast on Com. Essentially, you run the install command to install the EPEL repository. Once that's done, you install yumutils. And then after that, you're able to actually enable the repository and install uh, PHP 7.2. Now, I ran through this uh, just before I got on here because I kind of wonder if this isn't the guide that you were or if this wasn't the process that you were following. the repo for PHP seven point two is the is I think what you're referencing, rpm's.remirepo.net. Um but I did run through this on in DigitalOcean on a droplet, which I spun up for next to nothing just to try this out, and it worked just fine on on the uh, on the latest version of CentOS that they offer. So I I would invite you to give that a shot if I perhaps you had a, a an outdated guide. Maybe that's why it's not working. I'm not exactly sure. So I'll give you the guide that I know 100% for sure works. And of course, as always, um, you can always reach out to us, uh, send us an email and say, hey, this isn't working and I need a little bit of extra help. Another way that you can get some help is through either the dedicated chat room that we are talking about or in our interactive Telegram group. Now, you can join that by going to telegram.asnowashow.com. There are the conversation about Linux and open source continues 24-7-365. That group has absolutely exploded. I used to think that we had to do drawings and stuff like that to boost membership and and mostly just to give people a thank you and and show my gratitude for the fact that people are joining. But you know what? The group has grown since our last drawing has grown almost another hundred members and I've not done anything. Um, it's just be- taken off as a community of its own. And early on, there was some discussion. Do, do things have to be related to the show? Do they have- no, 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 no i want it to be a community a welcoming and opening place for anybody to show up and just have a conversation about linux whether you're brand new to it or you are a you're a linux veteran we invite you to join us podcast.asknoahshow or excuse me telegram.asknoahshow.com and become a part of that community now coming up later in this hour we have an exciting lineup patrick mcbride i'm so excited to have him he is the senior director of patents for red hat obviously Red Hat in the news all over the place, but Patrick was able to to find some time to join us here tonight on the Ask Noah show to talk to us about Microsoft joining the Open Invention Network. Now, if you're not if you're not already familiar with the Open Invention Network, it's it's a pretty fantastic organization that's doing some very cool things. And I was not actually previously aware of this organization until Microsoft joined, and I started reading some some news about it. But the Uh, essentially the open invention network is a patent pool it's a group that goes out and tries to defend linux and in the name of defending linux what they do is they'll go find organizations that have patents and they'll say hey do you want to come on board and either give or sell us your patents and or do you want to retain, retain control of them and we'll just you just agree as being one of our members that you will not aggressively pursue at all these other people that are, you know, try and go after other people that are using those technologies, those patents. And so the idea is to have an open environment where we can all collaborate and all work together. I believe it was Ruth Seely one time that said when I was listening to her give a speak, and if you haven't heard Ruth Seely speak, she's a fantastic speaker. And she said, our parents would kill us if. They knew that in 2018 you were going to spend a thousand dollars on a cell phone that you couldn't so much as change the battery on. And that's that's where we are in 2018, is it not? Is that not where we have landed in 2018 with electronics that we are spending a thousand dollars on a phone that we can't even so much as change the battery on, much less have administrative control or administrative access to the device? So organizations like the open invitation or open invention network excuse me these people are changing this game up they are they're reshaping the way that large entities look at open source and the way that large entities look at patents and this is a very important part of the conversation and uh, as we get further into this tonight i want to start addressing some of the realities and some of the impacts to the larger community so that's coming up later in the hour also tomorrow two episodes tuesday we're going to have two episodes the first is going to be at 3 p.m central now that is going to be our linux stump the chumps episode i'm inviting my friends from destination linux these are some of the smartest linux people you'll ever meet and I truly believe, and they truly believe, that with our forces combined, nobody can ask us questions that we will not be able to answer. If you think you're, if you think that I'm wrong about that, then we challenge you to call us. That'll be 3 p.m. central. Of course, the phone lines will be open, as well as the interactive mumble room, mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org, or give us a call at 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. We'll also be taking questions via email, live at asknoahshow.com. So make sure to join us for Stump the Chumps. That's Tuesday at 3 p.m. central. Same bat uh, at the same bat place. We'll be streaming it at asknoahshow.com jblive.tv. Um it'll be on 88.3 fm here in Grand Forks, and we might even see if our friends of Destination Linux will be able to pick us up and, and restream us through through their methods as well. So we're gonna be all over the place. It's gonna be a really fantastic collaborative effort, and I also think it's gonna to speak to something that we're going to dedicate an episode on Wednesday. So getting a little bit ahead of myself, Tuesday night, um, is going to be our regular time, our regular place, our regular phone number, so we're going to take your calls, the idea being that this has been one of the most consistent live podcasts ever. Um, We don't miss our live time. We changed our live time once in the history of the show, and that was we went from Mondays to Tuesdays, Since then, we've always been on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Central, and I can almost all but assure you that I am the guy that never changes. We'll make sure that that stays consistent. So we want to be a resource for the Linux community. People have Linux questions. They know, hey, here's the guy that you can call. Here's the community that you can reach out to, and they will take you by the hand. They'll walk you down the the Linux aisle, as it were. So that's Tuesday at 6 p.m. Now, after the conclusion of Ask Noah on Tuesday, our friend from the Schmidt Show Brad Schmidt and I are going to be doing election coverage. Now, that's going to start at 8 p.m. So what I was, what I think what we're going to do, because there's this one-hour bridge in between the end of the Ask Noah show and the beginning of election coverage, and I, I need a little bit of time to get over there. I think what we're going to do is we are going to have a little bit of a, like a community hangout. A lot of people have told me through these special episodes their favorite part about them is just hanging out after the show. After the show is wrapped, we're not on the air. We just hang out. And I, I love doing that. I don't care if I get any show content out of it. Probably drives all of our producers and all the people that work on the show nuts, but I could care less. I just want to hang out with Linux nerds. And so if that's what we're gonna do, let's do it. So we're gonna do that Tuesday from 7 p.m. when the Ask Noah show gets over until 8 when election coverage kicks off. If you want to hang around for election coverage, that's great. If that's not for you, if politics aren't for you, that's cool too. Totally understand. But we'll have that content available for eight and I I don't know how late that's gonna go. Probably super late. Now Wednesday. That's the day you definitely don't want to miss. Wednesday is our celebration of our 100th edition of the Ask Noah Show. People are coming from all over the country. I've heard from uh, just all over the place. People are coming, and it's going to be really fantastic. It's going to be a really great time. We're also going to be discussing uh, some self stuff at um, at our party. It sounds like so. We've got a group together that are going to discuss some self Linux Fest, and we're going to have a, we're going to incorporate that. Um, going to have some friends formerly from Red Hat and. Um, a special guest, hopefully that will be able to make it directly from Red Hat. All those people are going to be there, and it's I'm just I'm so excited to celebrate our 100th edition of the Ask Noah Show. What we're going to talk about, and I don't mind spoiling this just a little bit, we're going to talk about podcasting, and the reason is because November is Podcast Month. So if you're thinking about starting a podcast, if you have something to say, if you have a voice and you want to do it, particularly if you're a Linux nerd, well, I have great news for you. Linux has all of the resources and tools that you need built right into the operating system to make a high-quality production on Linux. And at AltaSpeed Technologies, we are working our butts off around here to create a, to create services and an infrastructure around Linux to enable Linux users to do more podcasting with better audio quality that's easier and more accessible to people and those that want to really take it to the to the next level, super high-end, ultra-professional, basically you know, radio or TV-level broadcast, if that's what you want to do, we're going to have a solution for you, too. And that, all of that we're going to talk about on Wednesday. So make sure to join us for that absolutely massive episode. It's going to be a, a great time. So hopefully you like all of these, all of this content that is coming at you. The download number seems to show that. Some of the interaction I'm getting with email and 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 whatnot seems to show that people are appreciating that. If that's the case, please speak up. Join us again. Pound Ask Noah Show in freenode or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. Let me know what you're thinking because I'd love to uh, I'd love to get your feedback on it. Now, uh. I want to go. Well, actually, here, let's do this before we move on. I want to go and and touch on a second piece of feedback that came in, because, again, this is just this is just too important. We've got to We've got to make sure that we're prioritizing listeners. Um, This is an email from Frank. It says it's Frank KB one QZH from Samford, Connecticut. I've called in before regarding raw images on my Olympus camera. I'm sticking to the four thirds. And fitting a supermicro motherboard into an HP server tower, and he goes on to uh, to explain um, the process in which his camera was stolen, and um, how he had to purchase a new camera, and he's had some difficulty trying to edit the raw files that come out of this Olympus raw cam- uh, this Olympus camera in uh, in in Linux. And of course, what we had recommended to him the last time was that he take a look at the open source version of Darktable. I think we actually, if I remember, we actually asked him to send in some of his RAW images, and I think we forwarded those on to some of the developers over at Darktable in hopes that they might have an answer. I'm not sure if that ever uh, panned out or not. But he says, uh, first, the RAW files. Darktable has support for Olympus RAWs, but I also wanted to see what else was available for open source and started looking at Digicam. Both programs run on Linux and Windows, and so they have everything I want. I kind of want to get a hold of Brent Jarvis after hearing that he switched to an all-open-source photo workflow for Linux at Linux Unplugged, but haven't heard back when I use the contact form on his website. I want to build a home file server and a media server. Originally, I was going to go with FreeNAS, but several friends have, ex- have suggested RockStore. Besides storage, both offer containers and appliance-like, so family members can use it even if I'm away. How do you feel about RockStore as an alternative to FreeNAS? Well, I have to be perfectly honest with you, um, Frank. I had not, uh, had not really played with RockStore before i looked into it a little bit after reading your email and um here's what i have to say looks like a fantastic product absolutely no reason you shouldn't go with RockStore if if it offers you something that you want however if you're just looking for a basic file server even if you're not looking for a basic file server even if you're looking for a very complicated file server i'm going to still recommend that you stick with FreeNAS, and here's why FreeNAS has a long proven track history with uh high-quality file storage. And we have used it all over the place, from small businesses that have four employees all the way up to large, massive, massive infrastructures that requires it to be installed on multiple different physical machines and them all to be connected together. And we've used FreeNAS in all of those situations, and it has never let me down. Uh, the, I, I guess the point, really, where, it, where the rubber met the road was I had just built a brand new FreeNAS box had just put all of my data back onto it, and because I was in the middle of moving, I wasn't doing current backups, and one of my drives failed. And I called Alan Jude in a panic, and I said, Alan, you talked me into this free FreeNAS thing, and now my server isn't working, and my, my my hard drive crashed, and I'm really upset. And, you know, well, all you have to do is disconnect the drive and put a new drive in, and then push the button, and, you know, in this Canadian ice, I can't do it. But he, he told me to push this button. He put, we put a new drive, and he told me to click a couple buttons and ran a couple commands, and boom, Bob's your uncle. Server's back online. Everything's working. And I guess that was kind of the moment where I went, aha, this is really fantastic. Oh, yeah, this is why we put all of our clients on this stuff, because it just simply works. And so unless you have a really good reason to stray from FreeNAS, and mind you, I'm the Linux guy. I'm not the BSD guy. And you'll have to pry FreeNAS from my cold, dead fingers before I'll ever use something else, because FreeNAS has just proven itself to be that reliable and proven itself to be that effective. And it scales so darn well, it's just, it's hard to ignore. Um, Frank goes on to say, what would you suggest for an off-the-shelf router? I'm looking to replace my router with something newer as, as a way to set up a VPN so I can troubleshoot my mother's computers and stream media from overseas. That one's easy. Um, we have, we have since day one, and continue to recommend the Microtechs. And here's why. The Microtech routers are an inexpensive device that run an operating system based on Linux called Router OS. Router OS is an operating system that has all of the capabilities of Cisco's iOS, but at a fraction of the price. So you can buy an entry-level Microtech router for about $35 on Amazon Prime with two-day shipping available. Now, once you learn RouterOS, turns out it's the exact same operating system that run on their $3,500 routers or their $35,000 routers. It doesn't matter how far up you go in the Microtech uh, infrastructure, they all work Basically the same. The only difference is in some of the higher end models, you're going to get more ports. And obviously they have, you know, different speeds and then you get into fiber and stuff like that. But all of the options are there no matter what. So you can learn the operating system. You can learn the CLI. And of course they have a web config as well as a little um, Windows program thing that actually runs perfectly in wine that a lot of Linux guys use. You can learn all of these things on an inexpensive device and those skills will translate to real world skills if you want to become a network engineer so the reason i always recommend them frank is because they're literally you can't outgrow the device you might if you get over 250 users on the on the hex then i guess you'd have to go to a to a larger processing unit because can't handle the you know can't handle that kind of processing but you can't outgrow the device and they're just so inexpensive vpns you want to do a vpn here's how easy it is to do a vpn you log into the router just a basic VPN there's obviously more complicated ways to set it up and we've talked about that i don't know on this show but i've certainly talked about it on the air before you log into the device through the web config you go to quick setup click on a v thing that says enable vpn enter in a password bob's your uncle you got a vpn it really is that simple now if you want to start getting into ospf and and having that move some traffic around and 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 do some of that for you then it's going to take a little bit more configuration you're going to have to dig a little bit deeper Chris DeLuca and I have both set up a system with our Mikrotik routers where any router in the VPN network can fail. So I think he's got five in his and I've got three. And any one of them can fail, and the other two will pick up the job of, the, of their fallen brother. And not to mention, let us know that one of the routers has failed. And so I, he's doing it for, I'm not exactly sure what the... Um, Business model that they're doing it for. I'm doing it for both hospitals and and law offices, but they've got, you know, these outboard clinics that they want to connect all back to the mothership. And so, you know, these outbound clinics both have little RB 750s. And of course, we've got a big 2011 or something at the at the main office and they all connect in together. And but the nice thing is, if the main clinic ever goes offline, either one of those RB 750s can pick up and say, okay, I'll make sure that just pull all your network resources over here and I'll handle them and now we can redirect so we can move a server for example from the main office over to one of the side offices and the the vpn network does not go down they all kind of authenticate so it's kind of a round robin deal and uh it works very very well um and and chris has set up something very very similar and uh, we've both been very very happy with our Makertech routers that, that's what i would suggest you look into um he also he also goes on and he starts talking about um vpn providers and uh, so, for example, he starts talking about the um, New Zealand and their digital search policies. Turns out there's an article from The Washington Post that talks about how there is such a thing as a digital strip search. And the border agents will take your devices and they will, you know, try to confiscate your devices, issue you a very large fine if you don't let them into your encrypted devices. So he asks for my my take on that and my recommendation. And I do a lot of world traveling. I leave the country at least two or three times every year. Now, I tend to be kind of quiet about that. In fact, I've done shows um, as far away as Japan. And I tend to be a little quiet about that just because I, you know, from a customer relationship standpoint, you don't necessarily want the owner of your company to be gallivanting around the world Well, you're trusting them to run your network, right? So I, I, I don't, I don't advertise it a lot but certainly travel quite a bit uh, internationally. And uh, the rule I follow is simple. I have a world traveling laptop and my world traveling laptop is an, is a Lenovo ThinkPad X240. And what it does is I have a dedicated drive in the thing. I don't encrypt it and I I don't put anything remotely sensitive. I have some movies that I've legally purchased and I have those available as entertainment as I, you know, as I'm flying. I take a flash drive that is encrypted that has all of my company files on it. And what I know, but what the border agents don't know is that they're welcome to confiscate that flash drive because it's already backed up. There's nothing that's on there that I don't already have a copy of. So in the unlikely event that I am stopped and they say, you have to decrypt this drive. First of all, I forgot the password. Obviously, I would never refuse to decrypt a drive because that would be willful obstruction and, and I wouldn't do that but if I were to forget the password to my flash drive I'm not exactly sure what we could do I mean I'd be happy to decrypt it if I could remember but that, I keep that drive in my bag just because someday I think I'm going to remember what the password is and um, then I would be able to use all those company files so that that's been kind of my approach is uh, I I try to take a computer that is 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 very unthreatening because my laptop my day, my daily drive my X280 uh, boy how does I mean what would that look like if a border patrol agent pulls that out and looks at it I mean you turn it on the first thing they're going to see is that it's encrypted with lux and even if I decrypted that there are other levels of security that involve security tokens made by Yubico and all these kinds of things by the time i get by the time i even got the thing booted up just to show them that there was nothing on it they would be convinced that there's something on it just because of the amount of hassle it took me just to restart my computer which is not an accident right it's not that i have anything to hide it's just i think that i just believe in privacy by default so for that reason i would suggest either taking a dedicated laptop or if you can't afford to do so because i'm not you know i'm not an idiot i get it that's an expensive proposition my second uh, suggestion might be to do something like Maybe take a second hard drive that you're not using and load that up with uh, with a second hard drive and maybe do a clean install. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoashow.com. Frank Enza's email was saying, the last episode brought Bitwarden to my attention. Thank you so much. I was looking for a password manager for my YubiKeys. Finally freaking show up. That has got that got me thinking it should be used to store my passwords in case of death. How, what's the best way to do that? Um, and then he says, sorry for ending on a downer. Not ending on a downer at all. My death package, as it were, as Dave Ramsey calls it, the legacy box, is a uh, is I just have a flash drive in there. And inside of that flash drive is an encrypted key pass database that my wife obviously knows the password to. And that's kind of our plan um, if, if Noah gets hit by a bus. And uh, obviously, all- speed technologies, we've got there's actually an entire there literally is an entire plan of what to do step by step should Noah get hit by a bus so that you know we don't hurt our clients or screw them or anything like that. But uh, anyway, thank you very much, Frank, for writing in. Thank you to um Ashley for writing in. We appreciate both of you. Again, you two can join the conversation live at asknoahshow.com we'd love to take your questions the only thing we'd ask is try to keep them uh, a little brief because it's something that we have to read on the air if i have enough time uh, i'll go through and kind of condense them down and then we'll have those link free in the show notes so you too can read the, the emails in their entirety at podcast.asknoahshow.com now joining me or standing by rather is patrick mcbride now patrick mcbride is the senior director of patents For Red Hat and we invited him on today to talk about Microsoft joining the Open Invention Network. As I explained at the beginning of the program I think this is a very powerful and necessary organization and who better to get their opinion or who better to tell us what this means for the broader community than a large multi-billion dollar company that was purchased for tens of billions of dollars and they don't own any real intellectual property to speak of. They make their business model outside. They make their money outside of securing intellectual property with patents. And so that's the kind of people that we want to go to. Before I uh, before I head over to Patrick uh, uh, Cooperino, uh, is there anything that you wanted to add to the conversation? I see you jumped into our mobile room. Hello, Noah. I'm. I, I just wanted to ask a question.
0: Sure. I'm co-producing a hackathon that will take place in Engine Fork Working Space Puerto Rico, and uh, for this hackathon, the, the goal of the hackathon is to develop free open source software for educational purposes. Now, the software that is produced will be published on our website and distributed on Intel Nukes to 36 different cr- schools across Puerto Rico. Okay. Um, the team behind the Nukes and the distribution and I we're looking for we're looking for a tool to give remote maintenance to these machines. Uh, the machines will run Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate eighteen o four, and they'll they'll be running under the Department of Education's network and have mm. dynamic IP addresses. So my question is, what tools would you recommend to achieve this? To give this re- a simple way to give remote maintenance to
1: these machines. Well, you're just looking for like updates and like we got to push a package out here or install this program to all the computers. Yes, that kind of solution. Yep, I got you. Ansible is the answer. And we're going to have an expert on Ansible on coming up in a couple of weeks because it, it has really piqued my interest in the last couple of days. And, uh, and we're going to dive into that more. So make sure to st- tune in and hear that episode. But Ansible is the answer to your question. Definitely.
0: Thank you very much. Um, one more question. Sure. I, uh, looking for um, alternate for options, uh, um, we found this service called DW Service. Have you heard of it? I have not. Tell me about it. I have not. It it seems to be a network of of um, different. It, it's like a way for computer, a, a way to have like a mesh network of computers that are manageable remotely, so that you're able to plug into this network and okay. then you'll be able to 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 access more information about the machines. Uh, so uh, do, they, access, do these ma- do these machines yes.
1: have a do these machines have a graphical interface? I guess I should have asked. Uh, the machines that we'll be distributing, yes, they have. Okay, so I, when I was, I just looked up uh, DW service. So the, if you want that kind of remote control, I might suggest you take a look at Simple Help. That's what we're using to do exactly that. I had assumed you were talking about servers.
0: And not in this case. These are more meant for desktop use.
1: Okay. Yeah, check out Simple Help. I think what you'll find is that it, it doesn't rely on somebody else's service or somebody else's product or somebody someone some other company to exist for you to continue to maintain remote access to those machines.
0: All right. Uh, I'm looking at
1: the website right now. Awesome. Yeah, let me if you have any other questions, let me know. I appreciate it. And thanks for joining us in our interactive mumble room. Again, phone lines are open, one eight fifty-five-450 NOAA. That's eight five five-four five zero six six two four. The email live at Ask Noah Show com. Now, without further ado, Patrick McBride from Red Hat. Hey, Patrick, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
2: Thanks, Noah. I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah, we're happy to have you. For those that maybe aren't familiar with the Open Invention Network, what is the OIN and why are they a necessary organization?
2: Uh, sure. Uh, that's a great question. So the Open Invention Network was uh, formed back in the mid-2000s, about uh, 2005. And the, the reason it was formed is because... Uh, Linux was a growing force in the marketplace, and many, uh, I think, uh, forward-thinking organizations could see that it was going to be an important player, and yet it seemed uh, destined, at least at the time, uh, to to be uh, led by um, some smaller companies, uh, companies such as Red Hat, for example, at the time, and uh, another uh, player was uh, SUSE Linux. And uh, the, uh, the, the companies that helped form uh, Open Invention Network had in mind that they would create a kind of a safe space um, with respect to patents uh, around Linux so that Linux wouldn't, uh, w- wouldn't have to worry about patents from the companies that... That uh, were participating in the Open Invention Network, and so uh, companies like IBM and Sony and Philips and Red Hat and NEC and uh, what was at the time Novell and and most people think of it as SuSE Linux uh, helped form the organization. The the first important element of the Open Invention Network, and and the thing that really made it unique at the time was the fact that it owned its own patents. So. There were some uh, patents uh, that came out of the the dot-com bust of the late 90s and early 2000s. They came from a company called Commerce One. And uh, those patents were purchased and then donated to the Open Invention Network. And the Open Invention Network was in a position to assert those if it needed to defend Linux And uh, that was, uh, to my knowledge, really the the first time that an entity like that had been set up specifically to defend a a technology separate and apart from an operating company. The other element of the Open Invention Network, which is really the thing that over time has grown into probably the most important element of it, is a cross-license that is specific to what they call the Linux system, which is a very broadly defined list of upwards of uh, well over 2,000 packages, including, of course, the Linux kernel, but also lots of stuff up in user space and many things that you would associate with a typical Linux distribution. And uh, uh, all the companies that sign up to the Open Invention Network uh, cross-license agree to not assert their patents against the uh, Linux system as to any other member of the Open Invention Network. And and it is now the uh by our reckoning the largest patent cross license in history uh it has uh something like 2500 licensees and uh, importantly it is royalty free so we have lots and lots of very large companies but we also have very very small projects we have individuals who signed up uh, you can sign up for free and uh, lots of people do does
1: the oin actually own these patents do they acquire them and then they hold them themselves or is it just an agreement between these uh, participating organizations
2: well so there there are two different aspects to uh, the open invention network so there there are the patents that they own themselves and then there are then there is the patent cross license so so let's start with the patents that they own so Those started out, uh, uh, they owned uh, these Commerce One patents, which were purchased back in 2005, and that portfolio, I believe, has grown to hundreds of assets uh, that they own now. They have a budget, which is funded by the owners of the Open Invention Network, including Red Hat and IBM and others, and they use that to purchase patents out on the open market, and they own those. And they license them to all Open Invention Network members. Uh, but they're also in a position if uh, an operating company came along and wanted to assert its patents against an OIN licensee or member with respect to the Linux system, then they would be in a position to uh, assert those patents or uh or perhaps uh uh sell them or loan them to the defendant uh, so it could defend itself against the uh the patent claim and and in that way they help protect uh, the linux system and and like i said that that comprises a, a couple of hundred patents the other part of oin is this patent cross license that covers so it It means that the patents owned by members and licensees are licensed to one another with respect to the Linux system. So those patents Open Invention Network does not own, uh, they're just licensed through the network to other network members. And And those patents would be quite literally millions of patents. They're, they're, uh, because if you, 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 as you can imagine, add up all the patents owned by the 2,500 licensees, and it, it amounts to uh, millions of patents.
1: On October 10th, Microsoft joined the OIN. So does this mean that probably Microsoft is one of these participating organizations where they probably still own their patents, but they are just choosing not to aggressively pursue people if it infringes on the Linux system? Is that, am I understanding that correctly?
2: Uh, that is correct. In fact, I, I would say it's, it's not just aggressively pursue, it's just pursue it all. They, uh, If if you are uh, your, your typical, uh, say, Linux distributor, uh, and you are a member of the Open Invention Network, through the license of the Open Invention Network, Microsoft has committed to not using its patents against the Linux system, which is probably what is uh, what comprises, I would guess, somewhere between 70 and 90% of whatever Linux distribution you're using.
1: What do you think Microsoft's motivation for joining the Open Invention Network is given their history of closed source patented products and software licenses?
2: Well, I have to start with a caveat, which is that of course they they can speak better uh, for themselves about their own motivations, and I, sure. I think they've they provided a lot of materials uh, in regard to what has motivated them and so on, and and uh, I, I I've looked those over and and uh, find them largely uh, persuasive and. They 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 seem to make sense to me. Um, my own take would be that uh, Microsoft has come to realize the benefits of of the uh, Foss development and distribution model. That's something that Red Hat has been championing for decades. And in a sense, we 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 like to think that people have kind of come around to our our way of viewing things. And maybe one of those entities is is Microsoft. And Part of really truly joining that community and being able to reap all the benefits of it is that you've got to be a uh, you've got to be a legitimate contributor and participant, uh, not just a user of the community. And I I think what that means in this day and age, given the prevalence of the Open Invention Network license, is you got to sign up to OIN. Um, I mean, uh, the Open Invention Network is so broad and uh, so pervasive that I think any entity uh, wanting to be taken seriously in the open source community or the free software community Um, needs to seriously think about joining it and if they haven't questions will be asked and I think that's why uh, Microsoft joined
1: so it's really about becoming a citizen of the community and not a recipient of the community and it's essentially Microsoft putting their money where their mouth is but when they say we care about Linux we love Linux we want to support Linux because we understand and recognize that Linux is our technical future
2: yeah, I think that's right, or at least part of their technical future. I mean, sure. I, I think the FOSS development uh, and distribution model, the the uh, whatever uh, license happens to be your favorite, I think they want to benefit from that and they want to contribute to it. Uh, and they realize in order to benefit fully from it, they have to contribute to it. And and so uh, I, I think what you're seeing is – Is the fruit of many many years of changing uh, attitudes uh, in some cases changing executives um, and just uh, the company uh, coming around to a different point of view and and uh, I I think that's now bearing fruit.
1: How does Microsoft joining the Open Invention Network benefit or otherwise affect Red Hat the company?
2: Well uh, like many companies uh, Red Hat has had to concern itself with lots of different operating companies out there i mean i we we uh if you go all the way back to 2002 uh we we pioneered uh, what we called our patent promise at the time and and in that patent promise we we talked about uh the large operating companies out there who who had thousands and thousands of software patents and and uh how how we uh viewed that as a as a significant risk to uh red hat and uh, that situation uh, really has not changed over the years. I mean, there there, there are still uh, huge companies out there with with enormous portfolios, and um, uh, we have to uh, address that situation in in some manner. One of those companies has has been Microsoft. It's well known that uh, at times they've they've said uh, some fairly aggressive things about patents and Linux and open source and such. And those statements were not lost on us over the years. And so uh, we've had to concern ourselves with what they may or may not choose to do with their patents. And so them joining OIN Represents, I think, a significant reduction in risk to a company like Red Hat and to, to other uh, members of the community because um, it's just one more thing we can point to and feel comfortable that, that they want to participate as a productive member of the community and, and are not looking to, uh, I, I, I guess I like to use the word tax or Uh, levy a sort of a patent tax or or or, uh, a feature hobble uh products and offerings and projects and and such that 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 is not their uh their uh, strategy or goal
1: it becomes clear to you that microsoft has the same end goal in mind that red hat does as do everybody else that is part of the oin network
2: well I, i i'm not sure that that's quite i mean they have a they have a very different business model, right? Sure. And I, at the end of the day, we're all, uh, I mean, Red Hat is a commercial company. We have shareholders and, mm-hmm. and uh, we have obligations to them. And and I think it's a testament to the, the brilliance of the uh, FOSS development uh, and distribution model that that uh, a company like Red Hat can be so successful uh, uh, building its business on that model. And, and so um, I, I think we've probably gone among sort of medium-sized companies, we've probably gone about as far in that regard as anyone that I can think of. And uh, we've been very successful at it. Um, I I would say a company like Microsoft, um, again, they can speak for themselves. I I certainly don't think they're they're just uh, instantly going to adopt our uh, same business model. But I, I think what they are going to do is be be looking to reap the benefits of, of this open development model where, wherever they can is my, is my impression and um, I uh, I would encourage them in that regard so I, I think um and I think that's the beauty of the Open Invention Network I mean if you think about uh, how different a company like like Philips Sony uh, IBM Uh, Toyota, NEC, Red Hat, um, I mean these are all radically different companies with radically different business models, offerings, different sizes, different patent portfolios that they're uh, bringing to the table. It's a testament to the power of Linux and open source that all those companies can agree on uh, the need to protect Linux in in the way that they have. Absolutely. What do you
1: think, Patrick, Microsoft's decision to come to the OIN means for the broader community outside of Red Hat, the Linux community at large?
2: I mean, I think it means a couple of things. One of them is um, hopefully that community will find that they have more and more uh, interaction and and positive uh, collaboration and such with people uh, uh, who are coming from Microsoft. I, I think that I mean, there's no reason why uh, Microsoft has some uh, excellent engineers and personnel, and and I think they've got a lot to bring to the table, and so um, I think over time th- this should herald increasing participation by Microsoft in in various projects to to the benefit of of uh, everyone. Uh, so that's one thing. To the extent that people uh, that uh, are in the community have concerned themselves with uh, some of the things that Microsoft has said over the years about patents and Linux and open source and stuff, I I, I would I would think that this would be comforting to them and, and perhaps a a sign that a corner has been turned. And I would hope that they would feel even more confident about uh, w- what they're doing. Um, I, I do think there probably are some technologies over time that that uh, folks should see available in various Linux distributions. Uh, the 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 one that comes to mind, I think, is uh, uh, is TrueType, uh, yes. which I I believe is in the uh, uh, what's it called free? Uh, fr- I think it's the free type package, as I recall. Um, uh, I think you should see that uh, enabled in, in certain circumstances and, and, uh, because that's, uh, that should be covered by the license, and uh, uh, I, I, you know, hopefully people will find that uh, beneficial.
1: As an open source guy working for you know, one of the world's largest open source companies, how has Microsoft been to work with from a patent perspective?
2: Well, my experience at Red Hat has been very positive with them. We, uh, you, you may recall, uh, Red Hat uh, entered into an agreement with them a few years ago, and uh, I was uh, one of the folks who helped uh, put that together and negotiate it. And we, we, we found them to be, of course, they're they're always uh, very good at what they do. Uh, they're well versed in the law. They are clear about what they are trying to achieve. And uh, I guess one of the things I've always appreciated about Microsoft over the years is, is, is they, uh, when they say they're going to do something uh, they, and they agree to do something in an agreement or whatever, they, they will do it. Uh, that's... that's and they will, I mean, they will do it in the manner that you uh, had in mind when you negotiated the agreement. And that, I, I, I can say that about them probably going back uh, well over a decade. I think that's been true. Of course, anytime you're working with another party, I mean, their, their goals and, and uh, point of view and so on are not going to be the same as, as yours. But I feel like I've gotten to see uh, some of these changing attitudes and so on uh, occur over time and uh, it's, it's been very heartening to, to see. So uh, overall, I'd say it's been uh, one of the more interesting aspects of my career has been to, to uh, try to work out some of these issues with Microsoft.
1: Integrity is such a large portion of business, so it's really great to hear that, uh, especially coming from someone who works at Red Hat, who uh, you know, I consider Red Hat to be a, a company of great integrity, so that, that means a lot coming from you and, and Red Hat. Tell me a little bit about the Lot Network.
2: So the Lot Network was founded by uh, Google, uh, Red Hat, and uh, uh, Canon uh, back in 2014. And uh, it was really Google's uh, uh, idea. Uh, an attorney at Google named Eric Shulman uh, was its champion within Google. And I, I really give uh, a ton of credit to to, to Google. I mean, they, they were... Uh, behind this thing from the beginning and they wanted it to be uh, exactly what they said it would be and and uh, let, let me just describe what that is. so please uh, the the idea behind the lot network is that uh, companies would or, or individuals if they wanted to uh, could can join this network and uh, there it, it has no immediate impact on their, Patents uh, when they join, so it, it doesn't. So they can continue to do all the things they've been doing with their patents before they joined. But what happens when they join is there is a thing that um, let's just call it i uh, uh, I'll call it a springing license. Okay, so there's this thing called a springing license that is attached to every one of their patents and it doesn't have any impact while they own the patents. But if they sell a patent and it eventually falls into the hands of what we call a uh, non-practicing entity or NPE, or or, uh, some folks have uh, at times called them patent trolls, um, if it falls into the hands of a company like that, then all of a sudden the springing license springs into life. And what it means is that all the members of the network get a full license to that patent and never have to worry about it ever again. Wow. Meaning that the troll cannot go after them. So um, let, let's just say, uh, I'll make up a company, let's say, uh, uh, let's call it Megacorp X. Uh, Megacorp X is a member of the lot network and they sell a patent and it eventually becomes owned by a non-practicing entity. Um, uh, as soon as it's owned by that non-practicing entity, then Red Hat and every other member of the network get a license to the patent, and uh, that troll cannot come after us. And this has the effect of, um, of addressing one of the largest uh, uh, reasons that uh, non-practicing entities uh, exist, which is they're able to get patents from operating companies. Uh, if you go on the Lot Network website, you'll see uh, they've got some some uh, graphics and so on on there that uh, teach people about just how many patents... That non-practicing entities use actually come from operating companies, and it's most of them. And so, if you can interrupt that flow, you can uh, significantly address the the issue with non-practicing entities. And the the, the lot network is uh, is a raging success. Uh, it it now has 250 members. Uh, one of its most prominent members that, that joined a few weeks ago is Microsoft, uh, which was an amazing. Uh, thing wow. uh, uh, and um, but uh, they've also got many many other members uh, you can see them listed on the on the website it, it's kind of a who's who of, of Silicon Valley and, and other uh, uh, high-tech centers and uh, anyway it's very exciting to be associated with um, by by my estimation um, easily 10% or more of all patents that are, Uh, alive today in the world are covered by the lot network. And if you think about how many patents are out there and what that may mean for the patent uh, uh, troll problem, uh, it it has already played a significant role in in reducing that. And kudos to uh, to Microsoft for being willing to to join that uh, organization
1: and to google for coming up with this stuff makes you wonder how these people you know lay in bed at at night and come up with this stuff to to think of these very creative you know very ingenious solutions to these complicated problems
2: absolutely yeah i i uh, uh that's one of the fun parts of my job is i get to work with some really really smart uh you know people that are just at uh at the top of their game and and uh it's it's been a real pleasure and i i uh I very much enjoyed working with the, the Google attorneys on putting that together and and uh, uh, and and really making it um, uh, m- making it into a serious organization. And I think that's why uh, so many people are joining it is because they 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 see that it, it, it does exactly what it says it does, which is uh, uh, address the the patent troll problem
1: businesses exist to make money. We all know that. And many companies believe that patents are a way to ensure that their company stays profitable. Is there anything that we, the community, can do or we, the purchaser of a lot of these products, can do to make it more welcoming for these large organizations to come and join the OAN so that they look up and say, yes, we're going to give up some of our intellectual rights in that we're not going to pursue other people for using technology, but at the same time, we still stand to... To make a buck, we, it's, we're not going to starve by doing it.
2: Well, it's a very interesting question. I, uh, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is something I said earlier in the interview, which is that I believe OIN has gotten to the point where it is so large and pervasive in the community that any large entity purporting to collaborate with the community, to associate itself with the community wishing to be viewed positively by the community and to reap all the benefits of that i i think has to join the open invention network and if they don't then there's going to be a big question mark about them and that fact is is significantly based on the views of the 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 community members that you were just talking about i think to the extent that those that the developers and such have a positive view of the Open Invention Network, um, view it as something that gives them comfort about working with a large entity and, and their motives and, and purposes and so on. Um, And to the extent that they voice that, I think uh, it it just helps to make it even more of a prerequisite uh, for someone fully joining the the community. And and so that's probably the first thing I would say is just that I, I, I think it helps for developers to, I mean, hopefully they come to it. After examining the Open Invention Network and what it's about and its history and so on, I I, I think if they do, uh, I mean, go ahead and take a hard look at it. It, I I think you'll find that uh, it, it is what it says it is, and it is a positive force in the community, and they should look well on companies that join it and look suspiciously on companies that don't.
1: Well, Patrick, I was very happy and excited to hear this news. I'm even more happy to hear such a positive response from yourself and, and from Red Hat. I think this means very great things for us, the Linux community at large. Patrick McBride is his name, Senior Director of Patents for Red Hat, and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. We'll get you back on the program real soon.
2: Thank you, Noah.
1: 1-855-450-NOAH. The phone lines are open, 855 Email live at Ask Noah Show. Com. Just a couple of minutes as we wind down the Ask Noah program. Tuesday, 3 p.m. Center, my friends from Destination Linux join me. Again, special episode. We invite you to try it and stump us, the Linux chumps. By the way, speaking of Destination Linux, if you want to get more of Noah and you want to get Noah in relationship to some other people, like you want to hear some debate and some discussion, I invite you to check out the last episode of Destination Linux. That's a video podcast where we discuss Linux issues and of course last week was a particularly interesting episode because we talked about the red or well actually I guess it's this week because they we record on on Fridays and then they release I think it's on Wednesdays I think that's right anyway uh, check out the next episode of destination Linux whatever time or date that comes out we talk about the red hat debacle and them getting bought out by ibm now my view has not changed i still think it's a positive thing i think red hat knows what they're doing i know it's crazy i know there are those that want to make fun of the hybrid cloud and that you know red hat is crazy company doesn't know what they're doing i think i think they've got it set i think red hat is on the right track and i think that this is going to enable ibm and red hat to reach all new levels so again Tomorrow, my friends from Destination Linux, 3 p.m., 6 p.m., join us for our regular time. Jason Donafield from WireGuard, he's going to join us, and he's going to give us a detailed deep dive into an extremely yet simple, fast, and modern VPN that utilizes state-of-the-art cryptography. We keep getting questions about VPN and VPN technology. Here's your chance to hear it from the guy who's an expert on it. And now this may not happen before our 100th episode of the Ask Noah show, but Eric Dubois from Linux, he's going to join us and show us how easy... Uh, or how a distro that is specifically designed is an easy-to-use Arch-based distro built with the express purpose of teaching you how to use Linux. Same defaults, secure by default, and usable straight out of the box. I I don't know what to tell you. If you haven't played with Arco Linux, then you're missing out because it's an absolutely fantastic way for you to not just use Linux, but learn Linux. uh, Let me tell you something. The thing that separates the samurais from the kids that play with kitchen knives is understanding what all of those commands you paste into the command line do. And a lot of you out there don't. A lot of you out there don't know what it is you're typing. You just, you just copy and paste. Monkey see, monkey do. Arco Linux is the way that you can learn what those commands do. Hey guys, did you know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right, to subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but everything we talked about, all the articles, materials, everything referenced in this episode you want to get the latest, follow us on Twitter, at Ask Show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Central. That's tomorrow. Huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone system better. Produces our call created this hour. The show may be over, but there's plenty more content for you 24-7. Ask Noah